Anne-Marie Slaughter is the CEO of New America, a think and action tank dedicated to renewing the promise of America, and a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University. From 2009 to 2011, she served as director of policy planning for the U.S. State Department, the first woman to hold that position. Glenn Weil is a political economist and social technologist whose work focuses on harnessing computers and markets to create a radically equal and cooperative society. He is the founder and chairman of the Radical X Change Foundation, a principal researcher at Microsoft Research, and a lecturer at Princeton University. Today, Slaughter and Weil will discuss the recently released Roadmap to Pandemic Resilience, published by Harvard's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. Let's listen in. So we've got today Anne-Marie Slaughter and Glenn Weil to discuss the recently released Roadmap to Pandemic Resilience, published by the Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics at Harvard. Anne-Marie is the CEO of New America and the Bert G. Kerstetter University Professor Emerita of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton. Glenn is the founder and chair of Radical Change Foundation and Microsoft's Office of the Chief Technology Officer, political economist, and social technologist. And I'm going to turn it over now to Anne-Marie and Glenn for some introductory remarks. Thank you again for joining us. Great. So I will uh, start us off and I'm going to try to uh, share my screen and show you slides in just a minute. I do want to start by saying how much I appreciate this organization. Uh, I've watched it uh, for a long time and uh, it is what we, the country needs much, much more of. I'll also just say that New America is a think and action tank and we really define ourselves now as a community of public problem solvers. Uh, and I think the, the frame of public problem solving, even more than policy making or think tanks or any of that, is the right way uh, to frame the, our politics uh, and, and those of us who are sort of in aid of our politics. So I, I wanted to start with that and say how happy I am to be able to do this. All right, so um, let me start by saying, uh, who are we? What the Safra Center uh, for Ethics uh, at Harvard is uh, headed by Danielle Allen, and she is, her picture is there next to Glenn's in the center. She really is the leader of our, our Mary Band. It is a group of economists and public health officials or experts and uh, ethicists, philosophers, political scientists, uh, and a tremendous team of data modelers and data scientists that Glenn has been running. Uh, I, am, uh, I joined the group about a month ago and really have been uh, deeply supportive of the work. I didn't carry out the work, so for today I'm, I'm really the advocate and explainer. I'm drawing on my former legal training, uh, but Glenn, uh, Glenn, who has run all the modeling teams, will be able to ask any technical questions, uh, and we've, I've been uh, part of the, the rollout. So with that uh, sort of overview, and I'll just say for those of you who are interested in leadership in times of crisis, uh, Danielle's ability to step up and pull all these people together and really, and get this work done uh, with this team has been a, a joy to watch. So uh, I'm not gonna start with the background on COVID. I think at this point, if you don't have it, uh, you haven't been reading the newspapers, but I'm gonna start from the three paradigms for how we respond as a society and how other societies have responded. Uh, and obviously, I mean, the, the first would, where we just continue, uh, we, as we were doing and as we did briefly, obviously huge costs, both in terms of, of lives uh, and, I mean, really a devastation uh, to many parts of our society. The we didn't take that road, of course. The response we took or have taken has been a freeze, uh, which is really the public health response. Uh, and part of this, what this group has done, has to been to take the public health response, but put it together with the economists and the and the policy folks to say, how can we do something that saves lives and livelihoods? So it isn't a choice between our health. Uh, and our, econo our economy, it's not even prosperity, it's just our economy. So the freeze, we had to start the freeze because of when we, uh, but by the time we responded to the virus, it was too late 
to just start testing and tracking and, and a kind of targeted response that I'll go through. So we had to lock everybody down. We know all the costs of that. Uh, and as we're seeing right now, it's not just monetary costs, it's social conflict. So the third strategy is really uh, to mobilize and transition, meaning mobilize and then transition to a place where we can in fact keep the economy open and protect people's health, which requires a huge investment, but not anything that we can't do. Uh, and it requires a massive increase in the production of testing capacity, PPE, and contact tracing. Uh, and we're gonna, I'll talk more about uh, what that strategy looks like. But uh, to be able to do what we're going to talk about, we do have to mobilize as if we were mobilizing during World War II or at other times where we've had major national and global crises. Uh, and this strategy that we're talking about uh, would cost 180 to 360 billion over 12 to 24 months. That's still far, far less than we're move than we're losing, obviously, through any kind of freeze strategy. So, with those three paradigms, uh, the we published this roadmap to pandemic resilience uh, on April 20th, and it is a very detailed uh, analysis of why we think a massive ramp up in, taste, in testing and tracing and supported isolation uh, is the only way to go. And I will talk through uh, some of the, the basics of the strategy. And then we have just yesterday issued a supplement uh, that helps us uh, uh, tailor this strategy to the state and local level. So the, the roadmap looks at the existing situation. And again, this was released on uh, April the 20th. The situation is somewhat better now, but but we, st we have not gotten to the strategy we need. Uh, we had a situation of limited testing. Uh, and really it's important to understand limited testing in the sense of really testing only for therapeutic purposes. Testing to see, do you have the virus and thus do you need this kind of treatment? It was not, it has not been tested for disease control purposes. In other words, how can we actually figure out who has it and reduce the rate of infection so the, a reproduction rate uh, below 1%, below one. Um, so we had limited testing, we've had shelter in place. Although, you know, we keep talking about a lockdown, it's important to realize that 40% of the economy is actually working. Uh, obviously, the essential workers, but and which creates its own uh, health concerns, uh, but shelter in place for everyone else, and effectively no contact tracing. Massachusetts has started uh, a strategy of contact tracing. Some other places across the country, uh, but effectively it was too much. So, in, in normally, what you would do is you you test people, you and then you trace who they've been in in, in touch with. Uh, and then you trace, you test those people uh, and you repeat the process. And that has not been something uh, we were doing. So our strategy is TTSI, um, testing, tracing, and supported isolation. Uh, and it requires a massive ramp up in testing to be able to test not just enough for therapeutic purposes, but again, for disease control purposes. Uh, so you, you test the folks, again, who are test positive for the virus. And remember that 20 to 40% of those people are asymptomatic. This is why this virus is so hard to fight. Uh, they can either be pre-symptomatic, which is true of, of many uh, disease or illnesses. In this case, 20 to 40% have the virus and never show symptoms or never or certainly don't show symptoms that they would recognize as uh, something that they'd have to worry about spreading the virus. Uh, so extensive testing, testing the people, and then testing and then testing all the people they've come into contact with, and then tracing the the that next round. Uh, then yes, absolutely quarantine or isolation, but of those people who we know to have been exposed. Uh, so you are really uh, instead of a blanket. Uh, isolation or an isolation of 60% of the of, of the economy, 
you're only you're targeting those folks that you have reason to believe have been exposed. Uh, and that requires tremendous uh, man, an, uh, scale up in manual tracing uh, and also uh, at the kinds of apps uh, that have been uh, adopted to electronically let people know when they've come into contacts with others. Uh, and we, we, those apps are being developed. Uh, our strategy says they're easier uh, to use in some ways, but obviously we also have uh, recommendations around civil liberties concerns with them. The public thus far has been, at least the older public, quite leery of them, uh, but ultimately we need a combination of human contact tracers uh, and electronic uh, uh, apps that you then would, would be able to, uh, to use that data with appropriate safeguards. So that's TTSI, um, and effectively to implement it, and this was our, it remains our advice uh, in April 20th, that we would need 5 million tests a day by early June, so less than a month by now, with effective contact tracing, meaning the, the ramp up in the availability of tests, uh, in the ability to process those tests, uh, and then the contact tracers. Uh, targeted isolation, and that isolation needs support. In other words, the folks who have been exposed to someone who has the virus and the folks who've been exposed to them uh, need pay protection. They may well need to be able to get groceries, to get other uh, essentials. Uh, so you need to support them in their isolation. That strategy would take us four months to fully reopen if we started in June. When we were we were starting in in April, we thought we could open by uh, August. Um, but by waiting longer, we'd then be able to to open and stay open. Uh, and it would cost us about a hundred to three hundred uh, billion over the two years. If you just economically, you contrast uh, the cost of uh, you know what we were looking at, uh, we're talking about doing that. Uh, from 100 to 350 over six to 24 months versus what it is costing us every month. So economically, even though it requires a massive investment, it, it is certainly the better course. This is now just to show you what that strategy would look like uh, in practice uh, as a roadmap, roadmap. So starting with stabilizing uh, essential workers and testing them and tracing and purported, providing supported isolation, uh, retraining people to fill in where those people have to go into isolation. That was the strategy for May. Uh, then by July, we thought we could, again, getting, getting to 5 million tests a day in June. In July, we could expand the category of essential workers, continue to test and trace and support isolation. Uh, by late July, ending lifting the quarantines, uh, and then really in by August we would have had uh, a situation where we could reopen, return 20% of people uh, to offices, reopen schools critically the way um, uh, Germany is already doing. And again, we we developed this approach based on Germany and South Korea and a number of other countries. So that was what we were arguing on April the 20th. Uh, and indeed, there has been real convergence around this general approach, but there has not been the kind of investment in the testing capacity and the processing capacity uh, and the tracing and supported isolation that we would need. So again, this came out on April 20th. Uh, we, uh, the Vice President Biden or candidate Biden uh, and his public health advisory committee uh, on, on testing uh, adopted uh, this basic approach. Um, and the federal government uh, accepted, the, the task force accepted the need uh, for much more testing, but not testing yet uh, at our level. Uh, but actually just this week, uh, uh, Admiral Giroir said, you know, we're going to get to a point of 3 million a week. Again, we are arguing for 5 million a day and possibly uh, getting, getting beyond that. He actually referenced our study. Um, so, but the most important thing that has happened uh, since April the 20th is that the CDC has changed its guidance. 
Uh, it was only recommending testing for therapeutic purposes. Uh, it is now saying, if you look at this is the current guidance, hospitalized patients with symptoms, that's therapeutic, uh, these first three categories, obviously people showing symptoms, that's high priority testing. But then in the second category, and this is critical, uh, people with symptoms of potential infection who are not in the hospital or healthcare facilities or other uh, really high priority settings. But then critically, persons without symptoms who are prioritized by health departments or clinicians or other asymptomatic individuals according to state and local plans. And this is essential because this opens the door and provides the guidance for governors and county health officials and mayors to make plans for much more widespread testing. And again, for I think what's critical to keep remembering is we need testing not just for therapeutically, but to actually reduce the spread of the disease and vitally to increase public confidence. That if you know that people who've shown, who have symptoms have been tested, people who've been exposed to them and been exposed to people who have the virus who haven't shown symptoms, and the people exposed to those people are all in quarantine, your confidence that the people you are engaging with are safe to engage with uh, is much higher. And again, this is exactly what the Germans are doing uh, in schools. They're testing people, and if you're good to go, and we're talking, we're not talking about uh, antibody tests, we're talking about PCR tests, uh, you are virus-free as of your, your last test. So the CDC has changed its guidance. Uh, and that leads us now, and, and uh, the SAFRA group have, have been working with the National Governors Association, with the Conference of Mayors, uh, and with our own group uh, of mayors, uh, both Republican and Democrat, and I should have said at the outset, uh, we have folks from across the political spectrum, on how do they develop the plans uh, and, a, and really the, the choice of how many people to test. And here I'm going to, I, I will uh, uh, continue uh, with the slides, but I'm going to set this up and ask uh, Glenn to walk you through the calculations uh, that we've made uh, in support of this uh, local, uh, state and local and tribal guidance of how much testing uh, we need uh, to, uh, we need to do at the state and local level the supplement to the roadmap to pandemic resilience that we released again just yesterday uh, offers very detailed guidance for all these officials uh, based on dividing uh, metropolitan statistical areas into red, yellow, and green zones. So Glenn, let me turn to you and I will flip the slide when you're ready. Great, uh, thank you so much, Anne-Marie. Um, before I turn to that, I actually wanted to respond to a couple of comments that are coming through in the chat, which oh, I think good. are very important. So I just wanted to respond to the comment, which I think is very relevant, that um, you know, it seems like a great cost to the economy to keep things closed as long as we have. And we couldn't agree more. Um, we absolutely think that uh, the present course has been a complete economic disaster. And uh, we do believe that the public health community has, uh, has really made a mistake in emphasizing uh, primarily just disease control rather than what's necessary to reopen the economy. Um, unfortunately, places around the world that have attempted to reopen the economy without controlling the disease have actually failed to reopen the economy. So if you look at what's happened in Sweden, um, they never really uh, made any sort of a legal lockdown. And yet they've seen the same decline in economic activity that we've seen in the United States. And the reason is that the engines that get the economy going are largely people with discretionary spending power. If nobody's going to the restaurants, the restaurants are going to be shut down. If, if the restaurants are shut down, no one's gonna be buying things from the supply chains that supply those restaurants. The thing that is fundamentally fueling the economic shutdown is not 
the mandatory portions of the lockdowns, but instead the lack of confidence that people have that we um, uh, can safely go about without contracting the disease, maybe without knowing that, and then passing it on to our relatives who might be vulnerable. So um, if we want to have a chance of getting the economy going again, we actually have no alternative than to control the disease. And to control the disease, there is no method that has worked anywhere in the world. There's not a single example of achieving disease control without testing, tracing, and supported isolation. Literally every single case um, that has managed to control the disease is through testing, tracing, and supported isolation. Um, and of course, lockdowns themselves are simply not sustainable. People will start going out, but the people who will start going out are precisely not the people who will restart the economy. They're the most vulnerable people. They're the people who are most likely to contract and spread the disease. Um, and so there really is no trade-off between the economy and health. What there is is a choice of whether we focus on what has to be done, the only thing that can be done to control the disease, which is testing, tracing, and supported isolation, or whether we don't live up to that collective aspiration and we suffer the worst of both worlds, one of the worst depressions that we've ever seen, and millions of deaths. Um, and what is necessary to control the disease? Well, it depends tremendously on how coordinated and efficient our response can be. We can do this with significantly fewer tests if we have an extremely targeted and coordinated response. If we target those tests at the context, not where the market drives them, not where wealthy people want to you know, be tested so they can feel okay or where companies want to do it internally, but instead at the places that are most likely to have the infection, and therefore we're removing those people from the population can most quickly suppress the disease overall. Think of it like a, a war. You know, if you have a certain number of soldiers, you can allocate those soldiers to be private security guards for, you know, uh, individual companies, or you can have them be a strategic strike force that goes and finds the enemy and eradicates them. And if you do that, then everyone gets security. And if instead you use them as these private security forces, it's like whack-a-mole. You, you protect one area, the, the enemy goes somewhere else. So um, fundamentally, the question is, are we up as a nation for reaching the level of ambition and coordination that's necessary to collectively control this disease? Or is it going to be every person for themselves requiring ever spiraling numbers of resources, which because of the lack of coordination, we're unable to supply? Now, the strategy that Anne-Marie is highlighting in this map is, part, is, a, is an example of one type of coordination that, that we could um, achieve. And, and what that is, is a very counterintuitive one, um, uh, which is that we actually, in many of the areas of low prevalence, can suppress the disease and allow the economy to reopen as long as there's reasonable caution from people in high prevalence areas traveling there for very few resources. Um, so some of these green areas have very little disease. Um, and in fact, this is evolving. So because we didn't manage to implement this when we first started on this project, some of these areas have now moved towards the yellow end of the spectrum. And there's a dynamic version of this information available on our website. But in any case, for about 1% of the nationwide uh, capacity required to suppress the disease, we could suppress it within about 10% of the population of the country. Um, for about uh, two-thirds of the capacity, we could suppress it in 90% of the country. So it actually makes a great deal of sense to very rapidly allocate capacity to areas that are actually low prevalence, suppress and keep the disease suppressed in those areas, limit travel into them, and only afterwards go to the areas that are going to be the hardest uh, to control. There's lots of other smart strategic ways that we can deploy these resources. For example, if you use the tests to test specifically the people who are in critical contexts where they're likely to spread the disease um, a lot, 
and who have been traced and are known to have come into contact with the disease, we can also do this for less tests. Our targets for the nation overall are based on a more average case scenario, based on the degree of coordination that the best Asian countries were able to achieve, which required tw about 25 tests for every positive case. And um, that is what uh, South Korea used. So if you believe we can do significantly better than South Korea uh, could do, you might be able to get away with less than the 5 million tests per day that we achieved. So far, our coordination has not been as good as South Korea's, so you might aim even a little bit higher than that. Because in the United States, what we have that South Korea doesn't have is the best in the world uh, medical uh, uh, supply chains uh, and medical innovation that we could try to leverage to address this. So um, that is really the, the foundation of our approach is to, on the one hand, use the testing capacity we do in the most strategic way possible and achieve a low aim for a level of testing that is sufficient, even if we don't achieve perfect coordination to suppress the disease. Um, I don't wanna go on for too long because I'm sure there's many questions out there, but hopefully that gives you a feeling for uh, the type of strategy that we're aiming at. And this uh, it involves some disaggregation of uh, all of the um, uh, numbers across different regions of the country. I think we will, so I was just flipping through the very final uh, slides just to show you how detailed uh, the analysis is. Uh, and again, it was aimed at, at governors and, and local county health officials and mayors. Um, I do think it's it's important uh, it sort of at the, to just conclude is again to the question of how much testing you want is a question of do you, what do you want it for? And I think all of us want enough testing to be able to both treat and then control and then reduce the disease uh, and also to have enough confidence uh, to get back uh, to work. So I think and the, the um, we will we can end with what we are asking for uh, and very relevant to the no uh, the problem solvers coalition uh, our investments uh, in local public health offices uh, in contact tracing in voluntary self isolation facilities uh, a lot of hotels can work that way in income support for the self isolation so supported isolation. Uh, and then testing capacity, the best way to do this would be to be build mega labs, uh, but we can also do it uh, but through linking together the capacity of existing labs. So we have a, we end uh, with a list of demands or requests for Congress uh, with price tags, which again, it's a lot of money, but it's a whole lot less than we're losing now. And with that, I think we'll open it to questions. Thank you very much for, for those presentations. Um, you can see, if you look at the chat, there's already a number of questions. I'll get you started with one and, uh, uh, and people can then uh, chat, uh, chat to me if they wanna ask a question personally. So, so my question is, um, in, in a perfect world, would this be a federal responsibility? I mean, the next time that this happens, what, what could we have done better in terms of, do you think that this should be federal or should this be state by state because geographies are different? And the follow-up to that is, given where we are today, what do you think is the best we can do for this one? And Marie, do you want me to take that or do you want to yeah, take it? Well, I, I was, uh, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Glenn. So my, my view is that there, um, as is always the case in a federal system, the, right, the best possible response is one that leverages all levels of the federal system, each doing their relevant parts. So I think that the federal government should have played a critical role that it is only played to a limited extent in um, ensuring clear messages along the supply chain for the aggregate number of tests that needed to be produced um, and ensuring that those were allocated among states, not by just a pure market mechanism, but by one that would ensure disease suppression. But most of the rest of the process from the final mile of testing through the um, exact ways in which prioritization within states occurs should have happened at the state level. Unfortunately, even more seems to have been devolved to the state level, but I don't think that means all hope is lost. In particular, many of the uh, low prevalence areas 
are rural areas. They have a bit of more of a Republican bent on average. Um, and I think that even the limited testing capacity that the uh, federal government has managed to bring online uh, can and should be allocated to those areas. And the administration has every political incentive to do that and to ensure to seize suppression in those areas. That is not going to be even remotely sufficient to suppress the disease in uh, the hotspots, mostly in the US Northeast, but there's other ones uh, as you can see on the map. Um, and we would advocate those areas trying to form an interstate compact as allowed under the constitution to coordinate their efforts. Uh, in particular, Massachusetts has a disproportionate share of the testing capacity and has the ability to allow the rest of the uh, Northeast to um, draw upon that capacity. Uh, and uh, I think the role for the federal government there is really just giving a waiver to those states to um, do some of the uh, roles that are assigned to the federal government, perhaps using the Defense Procurement Act to a cer certain extent. Um, but ultimately, I think it does make very good sense, given that those are very wealthy areas, for that funding to eventually come back, for example, to property taxes in those areas, because those are what are necessary to keep those cities vibrant. I'm going to pull a question now from um, from the chat, which is which effectively is, how do people come up with these numbers of necessary tests per day? Because they're all over the place. It feels like they, in some sense, are just very conservative. Um, how do you really know what the minimum number of tests is? So the first thing I would say about that is that um, I actually, while well, they appear to be all over the place, if you actually read them, they're answering different questions. So some numbers of tests per day are what is required to keep ICUs from getting overwhelmed, but not actually to suppress the disease and allow the economy to stably reopen. Those numbers are much lower. What we are interested in is a stably reopened economy that it does not need to be you know, locked down again and again and again. Um, and that requires a much higher level of testing. Um, and I actually don't think there's disagreement among experts on this. I think the experts agree that in order to keep the economy stably open, you need the level of testing that we're calling for. On the other hand, if all you want to do is allow for a temporary reopening without the ICUs getting overwhelmed, and then know that you're going to have to lock it down again in another few weeks, that requires a much lower level of testing. Can I just, uh, I mean, just to add on the, on, um, the different ways to get to testing because people are saying, well, you know, yeah, we're testing more now uh, than we were, but we're still far, far short of what we or others are recommending. Uh, we actually, in the initial report, we talk about how you can get to this level of testing with current swab tests, which are not not pleasant to take, and you need swabs, you need anti you need reagents, you need all sorts of things but also through the innovation pathway, right? So the FDA is uh, authorizing new tests, including swab uh, saliva tests, which would be much, much, much easier and people could take at home. Uh, those are, are still obviously, the reliability is still being proven, but ultimately you could get to this level of testing through a combination of innovation and experimentation and the existing ones we have. I also did just want to respond to the point that, um, well, we can just, why not just take care of old people and, you know, let everybody else go and get to herd immunity. No societies anywhere close to herd immunity. Even the societies that have the most deaths have gotten barely to 9%. Uh, and to get to herd immunity, you need 60 to 70%. Um, and when you look at the number of deaths that would cause, uh, there's the basic lives argument, but there's critically also the economic argument. I mean, as a CEO, I'm preparing to reopen New America. Lots of people don't want to get on the subway and they don't want to get on the subway, not because they're afraid for themselves, but they're afraid for someone else in their family. Uh, well, either they're uh, people who have an underlying condition or people who older people uh, or, and, or even in, including children. So uh, this is not a an analysis that is bleeding heart kind of, oh, we've, we've got to lock everybody down to take care of people. We're actually looking at what it takes to get people's confidence up. 
uh, and people are by the the vast majority of Americans are more worried about reopening and catching the disease uh, than they are, and, and and thus will just stay home, or and they'll move more than they are now, but they won't move around nearly enough to actually get our economy open. The, the, the two other thing I would just add to what Emory said is look at New York City. A quarter of the percent of the population of New York City is dead from this disease. That is the reality. And that is right online, given the estimates we have of how many people have gotten it in the city, with what you would expect from the worst case estimates of how many people would die of this disease. So, you know, we are on track if this disease goes to herd immunity to lose 1% of our population, which is many times what we lost in World War II. So that is the reality of this disease. And that is the reason why Americans who have family members who are in those vulnerable populations do not want to go out um, under these conditions. And as we have not seen any country in the world manage to successfully reopen their economy without controlling the disease. And on the other hand, almost every country that has successfully controlled the disease is managing to reopen their economy. So there is no choice to reopen because no one wants to kill their relatives. That's what it comes down to. So let's skip to that other end of the spectrum then for a second, because we've gotten a couple of questions along this end also. We've talked about millions of tests, but let's talk about the individual for a second. Can you explain to us how often do, you, do people, does an individual need to get tested? Are they supposed to get tested you know, every day before they go to the office, which for the next six months could be two or three days out of five, or every day before they go, um, you know, work in a job that they are going to have to be in the field every day? So this is a strategy called routine testing that was advocated by Paul Romer. Um, this would require it to be effective hundreds of hundred million tests a day. This is a very poor strategy. I said a quarter of a percent, not a quarter of the population, a quarter of a percent of the population. <laughs> That's important. Yeah. Um, so this would require a hundred million people uh, to be tested every day. That is an incredibly hard lift. No country in the world that has su successfully suppressed the disease has done it through routine testing. Zero. There is not a single example of that. And in fact, there's not a single example, as far as I know, in world history of any disease being suppressed through, through routine testing. On the other hand, every country that has successfully suppressed this has done it through testing with tracing and supported isolation, which means that you don't go around and just test people regularly. What you do is you find the cases, you find the people who are in touch with those people, you get them out of the population and into care at home with support, and you keep doing that until you've dramatically reduced the amount of disease in the population. So, so that's a much more intelligent way and in fact, you can do even more intelligent wrinkles on that and, and how far we get along that and whatever determines precisely how much how many tests you need. But tell me what you say to the individual, individual, every morning at 7.30. Explain to me what that looks like and how that works in our society. So at present, in the areas of high prevalence, those individuals are not going to want to go out. But on the other hand, if we use our test to find the disease and suppress it, and people come to know that there's very little disease out there and their chances of contracting it are very low, people will have the confidence to go out. So that strategy, this is, look, again, this really is like private security versus collective security. If we're in the middle of a war zone, there's a temptation for everyone to want a private security guard to defend their home. But on the other hand, if we have a competent military that suppresses the enemy, then you don't need that. Everyone can go about safely because they know that the military is there to defend them. So what we need to do, it's so much more effective to have collective security than private security. That doesn't mean that private security isn't a fallback under certain circumstances for certain you know, critical areas, but we are all far better off if we have a military that defends us all than if every one of us has a security guard that keeps out you know, the, the terrorists. So most people would not be testing every morning uh, unless they've been exposed to somebody uh, or unless they're in high, you know, in, in, in frontline 
uh, in, in frontline health workers, particular areas where we're, we already know they're, they're likely to be exposed, uh, there would be more routine testing, but for most people not. Right. I mean, one thing that might be interesting for your research and also for your messaging to our society is explaining how many times different kinds of people would be tested. Because I do think people have a sense that, you know, I don't want to get up every morning and be tested. And yep. I think you have left it to very big numbers and averages that are a little stunning and sometimes scary to people. That's very so helpful. One, one clear thing is 5 million tests, while it's a large number, is roughly once every two months. That people that's, a much, that's a much different number than telling everybody they need to get tested five times a week. Yeah. Yeah, that's very helpful. Right. Um, can you speak a little bit to the practicality of doing this kind of this many tests? I mean, in, where we are today, this sounds interesting from an academic perspective, but based on what you know of what's going on in the industry and the manufacturing right now, what's really going to happen over the next two to three months? How many tests can really be done? It's a question of political will. It is not fundamentally a question of logistics. There are many pathways, both by expanding existing capacity and by rapid innovation to dramatically, and, and there's been a bunch of articles written about this. We have pieces out on it, et cetera. The question is, is there a will to get where we need to get? Um, and so far, there has not been the consensus around that that um, is required to make it happen because the supply chain and the providers are not getting the signal that there is the effective demand for that and the willingness to put up the funds necessary to do those innovations uh, and so forth. So that that is really the the problem that, that we have been facing. And the reason why we come to you all is because we believe in building that consensus so that we can get out of this lockdown. But this isn't just academic. I mean, the people who've done this best are in Smith County, Texas. Right. I and mean, we've been working with with county health authorities, some of whom have actually because managed to do this. Uh, and indeed, there are mayors and governors across the country who are looking to do this. Massachusetts has ramped up its, a version of this strategy uh, with contact tracers. I mean, yes, the best scenario, which I don't think is going to happen, would have been for the uh, federal government to say, here's the national strategy and here's what we need uh, in terms of supply chains. And of course we can do this. We're America. Of course we can do this. Uh, but if we're not, but you know, there is also, the president is right, a role for the states uh, and the cities. It would have been better uh, in our view for that role to take place within an agreed national strategy and the ability to actually order the production of tests that we that we need and all the, the associated uh, materials. But if you can't do it that way, then you can do it through compacts of states. Uh, and governors certainly are on the front lines. If this is if we have to open up and shut back down, and do, much less do that on a rolling basis, the costs are just astronomical. You, I mean, this is the only strategy that has really worked and we can do it and we could do it, uh, but we first got to, to get people to understand why it makes more sense to invest and do it this way. Has any of your work taken into account antibody testing? We've only talked about um, testing for the virus. Where does, um, where does your work leave off with antibody testing or have you included that? So the role for antibody testing is really in identifying people who are able to care for and protect um, the most vulnerable parts of the population. Antibody testing cannot be used to detect current disease status and therefore to remove people from the population who are likely to infect others. Instead, it can identify people who are temporarily immune and therefore able to donate plasma, which is an extremely effective treatment for the disease. It's almost 100% recovery rate based on plasma treatment. Um, now, a big limitation on this is it's only in places where a large number of people have been exposed to the disease and therefore where we've largely failed to control it that antibody testing is likely to be useful. Is that Those are the places where you're gonna find a lot of people with positive tests. So. Antibody testing is a good fallback in the case of failure. It is not a good frontline defense. It's something to be used in the retreat, 
not in, in for victory. And of course, we do not know whether or not the antibodies will protect you against next year's version of COVID, uh, like uh, or or whether even whether a few months down like the road. I mean, we actually don't even know whether it lasts longer than six weeks. The immunity that you get. So, next question. Um, let's bring us back to no labels and what we do a little bit in the Problem Solvers Caucus. In your travels and discussions over the last few months, you've been talking to a lot of people. What, in your opinion? is the messaging that resonates on both sides of the aisle? Uh, from, from my perspective, it's saving li lives and livelihoods. It's pointing, I mean, we have gotten ourselves to a situation where uh, so we're supposedly choosing between saving lives and saving the economy, which is crazy in the first place, because obviously without functioning economy, many, many people suffer. Uh, this is not a choice. This is how do, what is our strategy so we can both save lives? Uh, and again, you, whatever risk you want to take, it's a different thing when you think about infecting somebody else who could die from it. Uh, and this is a disease that we're still finding out all sorts of things about. Uh, but the, the point is you need, you need a strategy that takes both into account. Uh, and in, in our experience, talking to lots of different groups, including, again, mayors uh, and county health officials, that's the sensible way to think about this is to, to protect people's livelihoods and while also making sure we're fighting this disease uh, and reducing it. I want to see if there are any other questions out there that, uh, that people have that they'd like to ask directly. Hello. Hello, Anne-Marie. Uh, is that Bill Bolton? I can't it is. see. Okay. Yes, it is. Okay, <laughs> uh, Germany hasn't done significantly more testing per capita than the United States has. So could you flesh out, you know, Germany is a populous federal republic. It's a reasonable apples to apples comparison. So what did the German government do right that we failed to do? Germany is not a utopia. It's, you know, it's a country that is a lot like the United States in some ways and different in others. So what did they do that we haven't done? And what can we learn from that? So... Do you, do you want to go ahead, Anne Marie? No, you go ahead, and I'll, I'll fill in. So, 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 a few things. So, first of all, um, at a macro level, I think the most effective thing Germany did was very quickly they instituted a structure that was quite similar to the group that we had, which was an integrative expertise structure that delivered a report to Merkel uh, very, very rapidly that integrated across all of the different domains, and it recommended a strategy extremely closely parallel to ours. They immediately got a structure going for uh, the digital tracing, which is uh, getting up and running right now. They had a large push on manual contact tracing. Uh, with the most effective use of tests, you need many fewer tests. So, and, and they have a very powerful structure uh, of having all the um, states meet together and coordinate their activities, uh, and that that also meets with the federal structure. So um, the coordination and the strategy and the integrative strategy uh, at all levels of government around um, these types of principles allowed them to make much more effective use of a, as you put it, somewhat higher, but relatively similar number of resources to what the United States had. Unfortunately, in the United States, we neither got that increase in resources nor the coordination necessary to make it maximally effective. Um, and uh, that's the reason why we're lagging behind them. By the way, there's many other things going on in Germany as well. It's not just that they've done a better job of suppressing the disease. It's also that they've done a far, far better job of mitigating the effects of the disease through um, the triage protocols that they have in the hospitals through their more effective use of therapeutics through their use of early um, uh, uh, telemetry, you know, using pulse ox oximetry to keep people out of the ICUs. So there's, there's many things that were more effective there in addition to their efforts at disease suppression. But there's, and there's one point, Bill, that, that is critical. 
you know, if you do this early, it's you you have to it's much more effective you can you, you many fewer tests because you're controlling if we if you're controlling the disease from the outset because you're able to trace who has actually been infected or exposed uh, and then isolate them and then keep doing that so you know south korea which had had the experience with sars uh, called together uh, pharmaceutical companies, medical supply companies in late January and said, we've got to ramp up uh, our ability to test uh, before the disease was raging, right? At that point in South Korea, they had had a you know, one, very small number of cases. And Germany, similarly, was just ahead of the game. Yeah, that's a critical point. The, 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 it is a huge mistake to look at the number of tests per capita the relevant statistic is the ratio of the number of tests administered to the number of cases in the population or the number of deaths or something like that. That is the right number to focus on. And so it's extremely misleading. Like, like, for example, many people have said, oh, well, we're doing way more tests per capita than Korea. Well, Korea never got anywhere near the disease prevalence that we got to because they acted early. So the earlier you act, the more the, the less resources you need to, to suppress the disease. Which means we could act like this in many parts of the US right now where there's really low prevalence and stop it from ever getting to what it's been like in New York or New Jersey or Massachusetts or Detroit uh, or, or uh, New Orleans. Uh, if you look at that map, we have, the ch we have the opportunity to get ahead of it in so many parts of the country. Thank you. Uh, John Muse has a question. You mentioned Smith County, Texas, which I spent nine of my formative years growing up there. What are they <laughs> on tracing and testing? That surprised me. Um, yeah, so I, I actually, Danielle is the one who looked into that story. I don't know the details of it, but uh, they have done very well. There's also a county in um, Colorado. Uh, I believe it's the one that includes Vail that has managed to very effectively uh, suppress the disease. There are localized pockets of excellence that we've seen around the country uh, in this. Unfortunately, without coordination, there's a huge problem of people then coming into those areas and reintroducing the disease uh, and of not being able to do that effectively uh, everywhere because if everywhere is you know, for themselves and just suppressing the disease there, um, there's, you know, there's no national suppression of the disease. So without very strict border controls, there's basically no way to keep the disease out. And I'll, I'll just- Business, we would call that benchmarking. So you would share whatever that success formula is and apply it elsewhere. Is there any kind of clearinghouse to share that information? Well, so there- yeah, but there there are a number, uh, and indeed, I so last week I was on a call with George Roberts, who's the uh, the county health officer uh, for Smith County, and I'll tell you what else they they did very effectively was to create really a fusion cell of the health authorities, the county authorities, the city authorities, uh, and, and the with the public health folks. Uh, so they were able to track uh, very, very carefully the prevalence of the disease, and they managed to get tests. And they kind of jerry-rigged some stuff, uh, but they did it effectively. Uh, and they, they, that call was a call of mayors and county health officials. Uh, the Saffer Group has a small network. Bloomberg, of course, has a large network of mayors, and we've been working with them, and they, they are also sharing best practice. Uh, and the Rockefeller Foundation has a network of mayors. And then there's the National Conference of Mayors. It is not nearly systematic enough, uh, but believe me, mayors are, and I know this from the mayors just here in New Jersey, are reaching out and trying to find information as much as possible. But one of the reasons we wanted to put this report out was to give every uh, mayor, every county health official in the country, they can look at this map, they can look at where they are, uh, they can see what the prevalence is, and they can uh, see other, what others have done. I think we have time for one last question. Um, Eric Chern. Hi, uh, thanks very much. Uh, this has been very interesting. Um, you, you mentioned that, you know, the way to get this done, it's just a matter of political will. 
um, and you know, sort of, I guess, appropriate, you know, with this group at No Labels. Um, it would seem to me that to get the political will, it, it sort of implies already that we're acting with a single mind and that there's like this shared, uh, um, you know, um, view of the of the situation and, and a balanced approach and, and um, that this um, shared uh, uh, cause uh, can, can have us arrive at the political will. Uh, but obviously in the current environment, it seems things are more divisive than is the cause shared often. So I'm wondering how realistic this really is. You know, I, I'm reminded of like, as you're learning to drive, one thing you're taught is make a decision and go one way or the other. Just don't hesitate in the middle of the intersection. And, and, and so here we are. We need political will to do this. So I, I'm wondering what your view is of how realistic it is to, uh, to arrive at that political will and, and, and how we might get there. Uh so I'll, I'll take a crack at that. And Marcy, if you can also put the supplement in the chat as well. Yes, there it is. <laughs> uh, so we have the initial pandemic, the roadmap to pandemic resilience, and then, then this, this supplement. Um, you know, I do think that, un unfortunately, I, th I, I do think the virus in many ways is going to get worse uh, before it gets better. Uh, I think we are already seeing... Um, lots of folks, uh, including Republican governors as, uh, as well as Democrats, Republican mayors, again, the folks who are on the front line saying, you know, the, vi the virus is not political. Uh, and again, if we can frame this in, in, or move away from the crazy idea that, you know, some people want to just save lives and other people want to save the economy, where again, we have to have both, uh, then I think it is possible, at least at the state level, the governor level, the uh, compacts of governors. Uh, and I do think the White House has, has moved substantially in this direction. Where the White House has not moved is a willingness to actually exercise the same power the president is exercising to keep meatpacking plants open uh, to build the supply chain uh, that we need to get get the, the tests. Um, so that to really answer your question, I see the possibility of doing this regionally, not maybe not in all regions, but you know even if it's only some of the regions of the country and again that that it doesn't have to just be red states and, and blue states um, that will be a start and then I think, as this gets worse, both economically and sadly in terms of, of health, there will be a renewed will uh, to beat this uh, and we wanna have a strategy. And the last thing I'll just say is again, this is the United States of America. This is a country that I grew up believing could do anything. You know, We were can-do America. And to me, the idea that you look around the world and you see other countries beating our technology, beating our response, and we're pointing fingers at each other is, is tragic, uh, in addition to the tragedy of this virus. So you are a group uh, that want to put country over party, want to solve problems more than win. Uh, and that's an attitude that, at least in previous crises in this country, we've been able to tap. This one may just not be quite enough yet. Hey, Eric, I just want to, to reinforce what Anne-Marie said and what you said. Look, I think this problem is almost exclusively one of our inability to communicate with each other as a society. It has to do with the technocracy versus the political side not communicating clearly with each other and not trusting each other and the sides of the political spectrum not communicating and not trusting with each other. The, the basic realities here, if you integrate things together, are completely clear. Every single country that has done well on the economy and on health has followed a strategy of testing, tracing, supported isolation. There's just no other examples. I, 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 I suggest to anyone to, to offer a, a counterexample to that. Um, and on the other hand, the, the countries that have failed are ones where people are unable to coordinate and to take the decisive action. This is this really is like a military conflict where the issue is just do you manage to organize yourself to defeat the enemy or do you say so divided 
that you lose to the enemy and you lose both life and liberty. And, and, and I think it just, it really comes down to that. Uh, you know, and, and debates over life versus liberty, which often happen when you're facing an enemy, uh, are not the debates to be having. The debates to be having are victory uh, and how most to, effect, to most effectively achieve them. You just heard Anne-Marie Slaughter and Glenn Weil discuss the Saffir Center's promotion of a TTSI approach, testing, tracing, and supported isolation. They believe that the only way to successfully contain COVID-19 is to ramp up testing, increase contact tracing, and isolate those who have been exposed or infected. Although this will need to be done in a way that respects civil liberties, this is our best shot to save lives until a vaccine is available. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to stop the virus, save lives, and get Americans back to work. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.